And welcome to Texting Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp, and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes lost time and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading... There is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. Today, taking us through the Common Reporting Standard, or CRS, and how HMRC are using the information to look at various tax issues is Dawn Register. Dawn is a partner and head of tax dispute resolution at BDO, the accountancy firm, where she helps clients to resolve all manner of knotty issues in tax disputes. Dawn is a previous winner of the prestigious New Partner of the Year Award at the British Accountancy Awards. She's a regular commenter on all things UK personal tax and cross-border, and a self-described reluctant baker, where she helps to fuel the staff of her local hospital with industrial quantities of baked goods. Dawn, welcome to Tax and Matters. Great to see you, Alice. Thank you. So what is the Common Reporting Standard and how did it come about? So yes, this is something that people may remember because it was talked about way back when. Um, It was first introduced in 2014 and actually the first data exchange was quite a few years ago, back in 2017. But like a lot of things in tax, uh, there's consultations, there's legislation, there's debate, and we only then see it in practice um, four, five, six years down the road. And of course, that's what's happening now in 2020 and 2021. Um, So it is an international scale of data exchange. And it's driven by the OECD and many countries, including the UK, are signed up to that. Um, For those of you who may have forgotten what that stands for, we have a lot of acronyms in tax. Uh, That is the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. So most countries certainly that want to be seen as a cooperative clean, I guess, in colloquial language, tax authority, want to and do sign up to the OECD standards. And one of them now is CRS to say that if you want to be seen as a cooperative tax authority, you should be exchanging data and you should sign up to the standards set by the OECD for the common reporting standard. So it's an automatic exchange of data. Of course, data exchange has happened prior to this between tax authorities, but usually it was either the old fashioned way on request back in the day where there were singular requests for information or on a kind of more sporadic ad hoc data where I'm sure you'll be aware or listeners will be aware of data leaks where one tax authority gets, you know, back in the old days, some CDs posted through their letterbox (laughs) that they then very kindly send on to another tax authority that might be interested in them. And of course, that kind of thing still happens. But this is an industrial scale that covers most of the globe, and I think is probably far bigger than than most people realise. 
So how exactly does the Common Reporting Standard work? How does it operate in practice? So the principle of it is that you have to identify or businesses need to identify whether they are a financial institution. So an FI for the purposes of the common reporting standard. And typically, I'm sure most of you will realise that will cover banks, investment firms, trust companies, exchange bureaus. So those organisations involved in finance generally will fall into the definition of a financial institution. And if you are an FI operating in a country signed up to the common reporting standard, then you will need to identify account holders within a certain jurisdiction and you will need to report fixed amounts of information to your local tax authority. Your tax authority will then transfer that data to the relevant countries. So, for example, if I'm a British national and I have an investment account in Spain, then that Spanish bank will report that information to the Spanish authorities and they will then exchange that information to the UK tax authorities. So what is the scope of this common reporting standard? How many countries have signed up to it? Well, it's increasing year by year, but the big change happened in 2019 where we got up to 97 countries around the world. And as at current counting, it's up to 105 in 2021. So we have 105 countries annually collecting the data and then looking at all the relevant countries. So if you're a national of that country, if you're a resident of that country, if you clearly have an address in that country, so you may just own property, they will send the data to your tax authority. So again, giving an example, if you're a British national, but you have assets in three or four countries around the world, it's likely that that data will now be given to HM Revenue and Customs as part of the CRS exchange. So what kind of information does it cover? What is being sent? So interesting, because that's probably one of the most common questions I get from (laughs) clients who start to get really nervous. I mean, certainly it's your name. It's the name of the financial institution where you have an account or an asset. It will be the type of asset. I mean, I've had examples in practice where people have had their pension fund in another jurisdiction. And obviously, it does identify that it's a pension fund, maybe a bank account, uh, maybe a crypto asset, just to get it into the modern world. And (laughs) also an identifying number. So there will be bank account number or some form of identification locally. It will give a balance of the account or the value or the cash value or whatever is listed as the value of the asset, which if you think about some jurisdictions where you don't report worldwide assets, that may be the first time a tax authority becomes aware of, if you like, how wealthy you actually are when they can see the collection of the value of your assets. And then also um, there will be some reporting of income or dividends received or 
the value of proceeds if it was linked to a sale. And again, even if, for example, this has caused some concern, I know for beneficiaries of trusts, where even if you've never received a dis- distribution, the value of that trust is reported under CRS. So it may be that actually you've received no value or money or cash, if you like, from that asset, but it obviously may be very valuable and that information is sent to the tax authorities. So what have HMRC been doing with the information that they've received? So this is where we get, I guess, into a bit of a hot topic and slightly contentious area, if you like. Clearly, some of this information has been used for inquiries that have already been ongoing. So if you are high up on the HMRC hit list, as it were, and you've already got a big tax investigation, then clearly it's no surprise that when the CRS data arrives each year, if your name is on it, that is going to filter through the HMRC computer system and form part of the inquiry. For those people who are not under inquiry already, we get to the issue of nudge letters. And for those of you who are not familiar with this, (laughs) um, it's actually a government policy used by many government departments. So if you like, send you a warning letter that we have information Uh, that suggests you have offshore income and gains that you may need to report for tax purposes. How about checking your tax position, basically writing out to you to ask you and your advisor if you have a tax accountant. So, for example, we've had clients who've had these letters ourselves and and BDO prepares their tax returns, and I know other accountants have had them as well, to say maybe you should check your client's tax position because We have information that they definitely have certainly assets offshore and they may be impacting their tax compliance. So this nudge approach is, if you like, putting all the work and the responsibility onto the taxpayer and and the accountant. And why I say it's slightly contentious is that some of those letters have actually resulted in no problem whatsoever. Mm. So a kind of, so what, question mark. (laughs) To give you an example, Alice, you know, a lot of people clearly have holiday homes in other countries. And just because you have a holiday home doesn't mean that generates any tax reporting obligations, doesn't produce any income, you don't rent it out, you haven't sold it, you haven't generated any capital gain. Yet, it will be reported under CRS and you may end up with an often scary nudge letter from HMRC saying, you know, in bold letters underlined, check your tax position. We, we have information. So in that kind of example, I think it does cause quite a lot of upset and angst for people. And you could argue additional work where there actually is no tax problem at all. I mean, to to counter that, there are other examples where the nudge letter definitely does need to be taken seriously and there is an underlying problem. And I'm sure um, if you were to ask a representative from HMRC, they would say, well, of course, that justifies our approach Um, because uh, there are people who have got historical tax problems 
and CRS is highlighting this. So to what extent can HMRC share this information that they obtain with other investigative agencies who might be looking into someone's assets globally? Well, they certainly can share that information. I mean, part of the OECD structure and and network of signing up to CRS is that a country is saying this information can be transferred automatically without the individual's consent, without the individual's knowledge. The financial institution has to legally transfer that information as part of the structure of signing up to CRS. Is it then used by other government agencies? I'm sure it is. It's not something I'm involved in myself, but certainly we see government data flowing into HMRC that's then used for tax purposes. So I'm sure tax data then flows out of HMRC to, for example, other government agencies, you know, you can think of the fraud investigations, the border agency, all sorts of other government agencies that might be interested in it. So what can we expect to see from HMRC and other agencies going forward in terms of their use of this data? I think it will increase. The biggest exchange happened last year for HMRC. So each year, the amount of data, the number of individuals covered by this increased. And the big step up was last year where HMRC says it received 84 million details of bank accounts. Wow. And it covered one in 10 individuals in the UK, which is pretty staggering, actually. Wow. One in 10 individuals are covered by this. And I'm sure one in 10 individuals are not aware of this Um, in in, in terms of knowledge. I think there's a lot of blissful ignorance out there. So one in 10 people in the UK are covered by this. And increasingly, it will be used to inform not only serious tax investigations, but if you like this nudge approach of just saying to people, you need to check your offshore income and gains because we do have the information. So if you get it wrong, we can check it. And also things like penalties are now much more severe for offshore errors. One thing I noticed, for example, for those people who filled in their tax return online Mm -hmm. themselves or they have a personal tax account online with HMRC, there is a specific warning about CRS under where you fill in the information because it asks you a question, do you have any foreign income or gains? And if you tick no, it actually comes up with a warning saying, we do have data about offshore income through the CRS. So it actually kind of gives you this warning box pops up, which is an interesting approach. And that's new in in recent years. I, I think increasingly it will be used, if you like, as both a carrot and a stick to try and get people to come forward voluntarily, get their taxes right, But also, if you get it wrong, we're going to really come down on you heavily because we've got the information. So how is this informing the approach that HMRC has taken of what we might have regarded traditionally as tax havens? Well, I think HMRC would say, and they certainly did say in their strategy for dealing with, I guess, tax havens, they would let low tax (laughs) jurisdictions just 
politically correct, they would say that it's a game changer because they now have access to data that they have never had in their history. And also the secrecy or the privacy that has always surrounded some jurisdictions is now blown open by this. In a lot of countries, it's become in their interest to participate in this because otherwise they're kind of left behind the whole transparency, tax compliance, anti-money laundering agenda, which of course goes beyond tax, goes into other areas of dealing with criminality and all sorts of issues that we're trying to tackle on a global agenda. So I think HMRC would very much say it's a game changer and, and really makes their work much easier to really target their resources to genuine problems. Great. So what might businesses want to take away from knowing about this information exchange through the Common Reporting Standard? I think there's a few things to be aware of in practice. One one thing that I've noticed in the last year is actually this data is not always accurate. So a few of the cases I've dealt with in practice, and this is where you know, thankfully, I don't think computers will ever replace humans, um, <laughs> is that some of the data that has then led to an HMRC, either nudge letter or inquiry, when we've mapped it back and we've had to get either the business or the individual to go back to their financial institution, because what's come out, you know, everyone's been scratching their head going, this just can't be right, is actually the computer program that sent the data that then transferred the data to the tax authority that then sent the data to HMRC, somewhere along the line, the numbers have got muddled. Now, you can imagine in practice, Alice, this happens with exchange of currencies. Just the UK tax year, the fact that we have a 6th April to the 5th of April, and then everybody else around the world operates on a calendar year basis means that some of the numbers are really skewed for the UK. So just simple things like that. I had one case where all the numbers somehow had been doubled. And and so the individual's (laughs) concern was just like, that just can't be right. So we had to get a letter from the financial institution. We had other cases where the business had changed jurisdiction. So actually, by the time HMRC got the information, it was effectively out of date. Mm -hmm. So I think lots of practical issues are coming out through the HMRC use of this data. I mean, for businesses, I would say just really have an awareness of this, particularly if you're operating internationally, particularly if you're going into a new country, setting up new investments or new business or new assets. You do need to work with your FI. I would say it's in your interest to get this data reporting as accurate as possible. And then, of course, unfortunately, if you end up in the situation of an HMRC intervention, however that that happens, again, most people underestimate, in my experience, the amount of data that HMRC has. So don't do that. Because some people almost stick their fingers in the ear, you know, this can't be right. They don't know Mm -hmm. this. And, and, and of course, that doesn't get you anywhere. That doesn't bring resolution in practice. So cooperation is the key, checking the information, having an awareness of this, certainly being alive to it if you're conducting international business. Great. 
Well, thank you very much, Dawn, for taking us through the complex world of cross-border tax and reporting. As ever, a big thank you goes to Josh McDonald, who does all of the work pulling each episode together. Our music is from musical genius Andrew Waterson, who also produces each episode. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. A full transcript of this episode, together with our references, can be found on our website, www.rpc.co.uk forward slash Taxing Matters. If you like Taxing Matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield, and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. And remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks. Bye.